Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a September afternoon in 1969, opium trafficker Kun Sa barely noticed as the door to his headquarters swung open. The 35-year-old militant and drug lord figured that his soldiers were bringing him a report of another successful opium delivery. But when they pushed two men into the room, Kun Sa realized something else was going on. They looked like average local peasants, but Kun Sa's soldiers informed him that they were spies. They'd snuck into town and had been asking questions about where to find the self-styled general. Kun Sa calmly asked which of his many enemies had sent them. The two peasants tripped over themselves to explain that they weren't spies, they wanted to be allies. They'd come from the Shan State Army, a militant group dedicated to liberating the Shan ethnic group from the Burmese government, and they wanted Kun Sa to fight for them. Kun Sa was intrigued. If these men were telling the truth, the alliance could expand his army overnight. But if this was a setup, he could end up dead, or worse, in jail. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our first of three episodes on Kun Sa, a militant general, drug lord, and sometimes freedom fighter from Northeast Burma, also known as Myanmar since 1989. An ambitious and brutal man, he rose to become public enemy number one by the early 1990s. This week, we'll get to know Kunsa as he grew up in war-torn Burma and how he discovered both the opium industry and the life of a soldier. We'll dive into the rise of Kunsa right after this. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Despite having an international profile, Kun Sa was an elusive and mercurial figure. He knew the value of spin and propaganda and recognized that violent drug lords lived and died by their reputations and perceived power. At different points in his life, Kun Sa promoted different and sometimes contradictory stories about himself, depending on his agenda. As a result, it's often difficult to know the truth about him. 
Many of the most trustworthy stories are those told by the journalists who visited him at the height of his power, and for whom he no doubt put on a show. As his name was becoming known around the world in the late 1980s and early 1990s, Kun Saar was savvy enough to capitalize on the fascination. Few Westerners had spent much time in Burma, a country tucked between India, China, and Thailand. So Kun Saar invited dignitaries and reporters from across the globe to visit his own private capital, Homang, along the Thai border. He liked the clout that accompanied their visits, and it was a good way to spread the whispers about his power. In March 1994, Kun Saar heard through his network that an American academic named Alfred McCoy was in northern Thailand looking to interview an opium baron for a low-budget documentary. Having no interest in letting any of his rivals get the extra press, Kun Saar extended an invitation. Two days later, the four-man documentary team arrived in Homang. Several heavily armed soldiers escorted them to an outdoor pavilion to wait. In a classic power move, the escorts told McCoy's team that the general was very busy, but was looking forward to meeting them. As the day wore on, the sun got higher and the air became increasingly humid. McCoy's team was agitated, knowing they'd have to trek hours back down the mountain to the city before sunset. After two hours of waiting, they heard the roar of a truck racing up the hill. When the truck screeched to a stop, six armed soldiers jumped from the back. They raced into formation, lining a path from the truck to the table where McCoy and his team were sitting. Startled by the formality, the four filmmakers jumped to their feet, anxious to make a good impression. Finally, the door swung open and the general climbed out without any sense of urgency. At 60 years old, Kun Saar was still in good shape, having maintained his fast-paced lifestyle, and he carried himself like a military man. He strolled over to his guests and greeted them like a king meeting his vassals. But it didn't take long for Kun Saar to realize this wasn't his usual interview. McCoy was far better versed than most Westerners in the region's politics and drug trafficking. The general wanted to keep the focus on the Shan liberation movement he claimed to lead, but McCoy pressed him on the specifics of the opium trade. By the time the interview ended, Kun Sa was more than irritated. When the two men stood up to have a picture taken of them shaking hands, Kun Sa realized that McCoy was taller than him. Used to being the tallest man in the room, Kun Saar felt that his dominance was being challenged. That had to be fixed. When the general went to shake McCoy's hand, he squeezed it so hard, McCoy gasped in pain. And then he let go, his men racing into formation as he strode back to his truck. Within seconds, he disappeared and left McCoy and his team behind in the dust, reeling with shock. As he demonstrated with McCoy, Kun Saar knew that physical dominance was the only language guaranteed to gain him power, freedom, and respect. And it was a lesson he learned growing up in war-torn Burma. Kun Saar was born as Zhang Chifu in 1934 in the Shan State region of Burma. The Shan State shares a border with China, Laos, and Thailand. 
His father was from an ethnic Chinese community of Muslim merchants, and his mother was part of the Shan minority. The Shan were Buddhist farmers whose land had been lumped in with other regional ethnic communities when the British had created the colony of Burma. By the time he was three, Kun Sa's father had died, and his mother quickly remarried a local Shan official. However, within a couple of years, she too passed away, leaving the boy to be raised partly by his stepfather and his other wives. The rest of the time, Kun Sa was looked after by his Chinese grandfather, who worked the poppy fields of nearby Loi Mo Mountain. As a result, Kun Sa, whose Shan name means Prince Prosperous, had virtually no formal schooling. Education wasn't a priority in the area. The expectation was likely that he would follow in his grandfather's footsteps and work in the poppy fields, like most poor families in the hilly region. Opium poppies had first come to East Asia centuries earlier as part of the Silk Road trade. For most of history, they had been used primarily medicinally. But in the early 19th century, they became a major crop and source of income. Around that time, European colonial powers realized that they had little to offer their trading partners in China and Southeast Asia. In order to gain leverage, they needed a product only they could provide. Britain in particular decided that the answer was to get people in China reliant on opium. They started funneling it to Chinese sailors and dock workers. Addiction quickly spread and demand skyrocketed. And as opium poppies became a lucrative cash crop, farming spread east to Burma, which the British invaded, colonized, and haphazardly consolidated in the late 19th century. Along Burma's northern border with China, impoverished hill tribe communities had essentially been subsistence farmers for generations. But with the introduction of opium, they found a crop that merchants were interested in. Opium became one of the area's primary sources of income. This income became even more essential after the Chinese Civil War broke out in the late 1920s. As the Chinese Communist Party began to rise, soldiers who supported the elected Chinese Nationalist Party, or the Kuomintang, escaped to Burma. Soon, opium was being used to pay for the continued warfare. This was the world that Kun Sa grew up in. Surrounded by soldiers, conscious of his own mortality, and aware that farming poppies was his only future, he quickly learned how to take care of himself, which required both ruthlessness and charm. As a child, he discovered he could manipulate adults into giving him food and money. As he got older, he recognized that using people was his only path to survival in a dangerous and uncertain world. When Kun Sa was 14, tensions in the region flared up again. Burma gained independence from Britain in 1948. The ethnic groups that had been consolidated into the British colony had never felt like a unified country. Independence set off armed conflicts between the many factions, including the Shan, who demanded their own independent country. Around the same time, thousands more Kuomintang soldiers fled to northeastern Burma. Their plan was to take over the area, tax and recruit the locals, and set up operations for a counter-invasion to reclaim China. 
Of course, neither the local people nor the struggling Burmese government liked this plan. But they didn't have the resources to take on the Kuomintang, especially not while wading through their own internal strife. In 1950, 16-year-old Kun Sa saw an opportunity in all the chaos. He started his own mercenary militia, a natural leader who could align himself with both the Shan and the Chinese thanks to his family background. The teenager even recruited men who were older than him to fight under him. Some sources suggest his band of fighters were fighting against the Kuomintang soldiers, nominally on behalf of the Burmese government. Others suggest he sold his group services to the Kuomintang only to raid them for weapons when his men needed supplies. Either way, at an early age, Kun Sa demonstrated his willingness to sell to the highest bidder. He had no political convictions. His only allegiance was to himself, and he wouldn't hesitate to betray his allies at the first scent of a better deal. But a far bigger power had a stake in this fight. By the early 1950s, the Cold War battle lines had been drawn, and in the United States, the newly formed CIA was determined not to let the Chinese communists expand further into Southeast Asia. Their plan was to strengthen the Kuomintang by taking over the lucrative opium trade. But it didn't occur to either the CIA or the Chinese nationalists that an upstart local teenager might disrupt their plans. Coming up, Kun Sa discovers the opium trade. Hi, it's Kate, and I have some very big and timely news. Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers is the newest Spotify original from Parcast, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to blackmail schemes and even murder, She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. And you'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and more. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Follow the new series Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. By the early 1950s, the teenage Kun Sa was already a militia leader in war-torn Northeast Burma. With no education or skills apart from opium harvesting, he had seized on the financial opportunities of leading a group of mercenary fighters. In a region divided among the Chinese nationalist Kuomintang, the newly formed Burmese army, and the Shan resistance, fighting was a lucrative business. And being both Chinese and Shan himself, Kun Sa found it easy to move between groups, aligning himself with whoever offered the best deal. But war wasn't the only business in the Shan state. 
opium was still heavily cultivated in the area, and the constant violence soon made it the only crop that locals could still reliably sell. The question among merchants was which army would protect them on the long-established trading routes. Initially, the new Burmese government and Shan resistance were interested in eradicating the opium trade entirely. Not only was it a relic of the British colonial era, but it promoted violence. However, the Kuomintang forces needed a way to fund their planned campaign against the Chinese communists. Though they had the support of the United States, the U.S. didn't want to overtly antagonize China. So instead of openly funding the Kuomintang, the CIA supported the soldiers in using the opium trade as a means of making money. As a result, throughout the 1950s, more and more players got into the opium game, from farming to transportation to protection. With the increased activity, the region across northern Burma, Thailand, Laos, and China's Yunnan province became known as the Golden Triangle. With his band of fighters already in place, Kun Sa was ideally placed to jump into the fray. The 20-year-old offered protection to local opium merchants, and, as usual, he played every side of the game. At times, he levied taxes on opium traders on behalf of the Kuomintang. Sometimes he attacked rival opium convoys, ostensibly on behalf of the Burmese government. And other times, he simply demanded fees for himself. Kun Sa took the money he earned and reinvested it back into his growing army. He recognized that his power came from his military might, and this new source of funding could be a breakthrough for him. By 1960, the political sands were again shifting. The Burmese government was fighting for survival against a rising communist faction, and they desperately needed allies. 26-year-old Kun Sa was by now an infamous militia leader. The government approached him with an offer. In exchange for fighting both Kuomintang and the Burmese communist forces, the government would recognize him as an official extension of the military known as a home guard. Seeing a chance to build his power, Kun Sa was interested. However, the overstretched government army had no resources to contribute to his militia, and thus nothing to buy his loyalty with. So instead, the government offered him a free pass to traffic opium in the Shan state. This was the opportunity Kun Sa had been waiting for. He didn't care much about the Burmese government or their nationalist cause, but the Kuomintang were his main business rivals. He now had an official mandate to challenge their dominance. To that end, Kun Sa struck deals with whoever was willing to work with him, regardless of whether they were Chinese, Shan, Thai, or Lao. His trafficking expanded, taking over a number of major trafficking routes across the Golden Triangle. And to shore up protection, he absorbed smaller militias into his racket and killed those who refused. All the money he brought in went right back into arming and outfitting his men, who were the heart of his power. He tapped his contacts, especially those supported by the CIA, and outfitted his private army with top-of-the-line weaponry. Before long, his militia was better equipped than the struggling Burmese government forces. Indeed, 
despite the government's maneuverings with opium traders, things weren't going well for them. By 1962, the Shan state was close to gaining independence from Burma. To stop them from succeeding, the Burmese military staged a coup, taking over the ineffective Burmese government. Two years later, the military leaders declared themselves socialists and nationalized both the Burmese currency and much of the country's industry. Their rationale was that this would help them stamp out regional independence movements, as it took away all localized economic centers. But nationalizing so many industries took the bottom out of the Shan state's economy, which was built on regional and family-run businesses. Because money was worthless now, most of those businesses died overnight. In order to survive, the struggling people turned en masse to the opium industry, which operated on a well-established black market. Before long, opium and heroin essentially became the currency in northeastern Burma. Anyone who wanted to be able to buy necessary goods had to be involved in the drug trade. The Burmese military government had inadvertently handed Khun Sa and his fellow drug barons a gift. With the increase in power and resources, Khun Sa and his competitors were finally able to branch out beyond taxing, trafficking, and fighting. For the first time, they were able to build their own refineries along the Thai-Burmese border. They could now manufacture heroin themselves before selling it along at a higher price. The ambitious and opportunistic Khun Sa, now in his early 30s, thrived in this lawless opium state. In a few short years, he was nearly as powerful as the experienced Kuomintang generals. And unlike the Kuomintang, he did it all without the CIA's help. Khun Sa's steady rise forced the Kuomintang drug barons to take him seriously as a threat to their power. For years, they had seen him as an annoyance, another minor warlord who would never come close to challenging them. But the coalition that Khun Sa was building was cutting into their own profits. With each passing day, he was getting bolder, attacking their convoys and stealing their product. Finally, in 1966, the Kuomintang drug lords had had enough of Khun Sa. The powerful General Li Wenhuan, who controlled much of the Burmese-Thai border, decided it was time to teach this young upstart a lesson. Khun Sa needed to be reminded that he was beholden to them. One night in 1966, General Li's troops raided Khun Sa's camp and captured him. Rather than kill Khun Sa, Li decided it would be better to intimidate him. So he had his rival locked up in a pit in the ground for a few weeks, hoping that would straighten him out. But Li didn't understand his competitor at all. As traumatic as it was to be stuck underground, Khun Sa found it far more upsetting to have been humiliated so dramatically. Not only had Li invaded his camp and kidnapped him, but he hadn't even had the decency to kill him. Khun Sa swore that he would get revenge for the embarrassment. As soon as he was freed, Khun Sa went after the people who had supposedly betrayed him to the Kuomintang leader. Apparently, some Shan rebels based in northern Thailand 
didn't trust that Kunsa was dedicated to the liberation movement. Which is understandable. It's hard to tell if Kunsa was loyal to anyone or anything but himself. When General Lee came knocking, the Shan rebels recognized an opportunity to rid themselves of a potential backstabber. Getting on the Kuomintang's good side wouldn't hurt either. But as soon as Kun Sa learned about this betrayal, he turned the full force of his official government militia against them. Going after the Shan rebels wasn't enough, though. General Lee was still alive, and Kun Sa couldn't abide by that. He wanted to prove that he didn't owe the Kuomintang anything, and that despite their CIA sponsors, they weren't all-powerful. He was going to strike back at them directly. Coming up, Kunsa gets on the wrong side of the Burmese government. Now back to the story. By 1967, 33-year-old Kunsa was well on his way to becoming one of the most powerful opium barons in the Shan state in northeast Burma. With his well-equipped private army, now likely numbering several thousand men, he had become a force to be reckoned with in the lawless region. However, despite his growing power and riches, he was still playing second fiddle to the CIA-backed Kuomintang generals. These former Chinese nationalist military leaders were ostensibly fighting against communism in Southeast Asia. In reality, they were more concerned with dominating the opium trade, controlling most of the border with Thailand. But after being humiliated by Kuomintang General Li Wenhuan, Kun Sa decided he'd had enough of their domination. He was going to show them that he was just as powerful as they were. His opportunity came in early 1967, when he gained a new customer, a Laotian army general named Wan Ratikon. General Wan ran several heroin refineries on the Lao-Thai border, and he had heard good things about the ambitious Kun Sa. He wanted to see for himself if Kun Sa could fill a hefty order, 16 tons of opium. Kun Sa jumped at the chance. 16 tons was a lot to transport, but all his men had to do was get it across the northern border to Laos, where they would hand it over to General Wan's men. With that kind of relationship established, and with that kind of money in his pocket, Kun Sa would finally be on par with the Kuomintang drug lords. His army set out from the mountains of the Shan state in late May 1967. Along the way, they collected more and more men into their ranks. As they drew closer to the border with Laos more than a month later, his caravan was visible from a distance. There were reportedly 500 men and 300 donkeys traveling in a single-file line that stretched over a mile long. The Kuomintang forces knew their handful of border guards stood no chance against Kun Sa's army. But more than that, General Lee and his partners worried what this demonstration of power represented. Kun Sa was all but declaring war on them. Having controlled the area's opium trade for the better part of two decades, the Kuomintang leaders felt confident they could crush Kun Sa's rebellion. They sent a thousand soldiers to intercept the caravan at the Mekong River, where the borders of Thailand, Burma, and Laos all intersected. Finally, in late July, the two armies converged. 
Kunsa expected that General Lee would try to ambush him, so he created defensive positions to help repel an attack. His men fled into the surrounding hills and dug in, fighting off the Kuomintang's superior firepower. After two days, though, it was clear that no one was gaining any ground. Taking stock, Kun Sa recognized how dire his situation was. He was surrounded. In all likelihood, his men would starve to death, and the 16 tons of opium would be left for the Kuomintang soldiers. Even if Kun Sa was able to escape, his operation would be permanently kneecapped. Then, out of nowhere, fighter jets appeared in the sky. Bombs started raining down on both armies, followed closely by paratroopers. General Wan, Kun Sa's Laotian buyer, had decided to intervene. With Wan's bombs adding to the chaos, both the Kuomintang and Kun Sa's forces fled, leaving the opium and mules behind. General Wan's men swept in and scooped up all of the product. To the Kuomintang generals, it was at least some consolation that Kun Sa hadn't managed to complete his handoff to General Wan. They may not have gotten the opium themselves, but they had made it clear that stunts like Kun Sa's would not be profitable and lead to unnecessary violence. What they didn't know, however, was General Wan had paid Kun Sa in advance. He'd still received the money, even though he bungled the handoff. Needless to say, the upstart had outplayed the Kuomintang forces, both embarrassing them and building a lucrative new business relationship. The full effect of his power move would only become clear over time. For the moment, though, Kun Sa found himself in need of more allies. As it stood, the Kuomintang was still backed by the CIA and still controlled much of the Shan state. Complicating matters was that they also had a secret deal with the Thai government to trade opium in Thailand. If Kun Sa overplayed his hand, he would have multiple governments after him. And he doubted that General Lee would be content to just throw him in a pit this time. Kun Sa turned back to his Burmese government connections for support. This time, the government had a different ask for the warlord. The Communist Party of Burma, which Kun Sa had previously been recruited to fight against, was becoming less of a problem in the Shan state. Instead, what the government needed was for Kun Sa to keep the Shan separatists in line. Kun Sa bristled at the orders. Now that he was one of the region's most powerful drug lords, subduing rebels felt a bit beneath him, especially if there were no extra financial incentives involved. The only time he'd ever gone after the Shan rebels was when a handful of them had betrayed him, but that was in the past now. If anything, as a native of the Shan state, he felt vaguely sympathetic toward the Shan nationalist cause, though enough money would make that sympathy disappear. More than that, though, Kun Sa didn't see how keeping rebels in line would help advance his opium empire. If anything, helping the government out with this mission would take his army away from the job that was actually bringing in money. Which is why he didn't kill the two militia members of the Shan State Army who wandered into his camp in September 1969. Instead, 
he listened to their proposition that he switch sides and support their cause against the Burmese government. Ever the pragmatist, Kun Saar asked what the separatist group could do for him. But the rebels were idealists. They appealed to his mother's Shan background and reminded Kun Saar of his own childhood growing up poor in the Shan state. The Shans didn't need the Burmese government telling them what to do and destroying their economy. Kun Saar wasn't moved by these pleas. Though he did like the idea of an independent Shan state, especially if it was one that he led. That was the most interesting prospect. If he used his army to help liberate the Shan state, perhaps he could become the new country's leader. But that clearly wasn't what the two rebels had in mind, and so Kun Sa sent them on their way, diplomatically telling them he'd think about it. Unfortunately for Kun Sa, though, the Burmese government somehow found out about the meeting, and while they didn't care about his opium empire, they couldn't abide a betrayal. A month later, in October 1969, Kun Sa was passing through the capital of the Shan state when he was suddenly arrested by government forces. Charged with high treason, he was sentenced to solitary confinement in the infamous Mandalay prison in central Burma. The clever young warlord, who had always managed to wheel and deal his way to the top, was trapped for the first time. And he had no idea how he was going to get out. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Kun Sa transformed himself into a freedom fighter and ascended to the world stage. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential, with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking cover-ups, and even murder. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.